0: Bet to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. We have two special guests this week. A.B. Stoddard is an associate editor and columnist for Real Clear Politics and friend of this podcast. And joining us for our second segment will be a mystery guest, which we'll get to in a little while. But before we move to that, I want to begin this week with Biden's trip to Georgia and his big push for voting rights. So I'm going to start with you, A.B. President Biden went down to Georgia and gave a voting rights speech that the voting rights advocates in Georgia refused to attend and even Stacey Abrams stayed away. And Biden made a arguably highly demagogic speech where he said that you were either for Bull Connor Or you were for the civil rights workers. You were either for Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis. So,
1: A.B., what the hell? What's he doing? Well, this idea that it is not about vote casting, it's about vote counting and the fact that these Republican legislatures in key swing states that decided the 2020 election have now legalized their ability to nullify the next presidential election or other elections by just merely finding fault with ballots or procedures in different counties that don't favor Republicans, et cetera. This is the emergency, but the Democratic Party and the Biden White House truly have themselves to blame that they have waited to translate this message to their base and to the public and swing voters who voted for Biden over Trump and everything this late in the game, this has been the problem all along. It was never about voter access, but they made it about disenfranchisement and Jim Crow, too. Now, in that speech, and I don't know why Stacey Abrams decided not to go. Someone mentioned somewhere online that maybe she wasn't given a speaking part. We, we don't know that. But now they're back to the wall, don't have the votes, can't deliver, when everybody knows that it's now January of the election year, they've run out of time, they're going to lose their majorities in both chambers, and they can't get this done, and that they haven't budged the senators to go along on a filibuster carve-out. So this whole thing, I truly think, been such a political debacle for the Democrats. They didn't start it early enough. They didn't message on it correctly. They didn't emphasize the true threat that should concern Republicans, independents, and Democrats about corrupting the count. And they've just bungled it from start to finish. And the idea, after going to the Hill twice for Build Back Better and failing to get what he needed both times, coming away empty-handed both times, for him to go up there and have Senator Cinema release a statement at the same time saying she's not playing ball one more time, just makes him look so weak and it's so dispiriting for the base. And I think that they decided that all these optics, the speech in Georgia, the trip, the lunch with Senate Democrats, the trip to the Hill, these votes that are going to go down on Martin Luther King Day are for the base. All it does is dispirit the base and, and dishearten the base. So I think this has really been a real political malpractice all along. Yeah. Uh, Damon, There's so many things to note here.
0: One is that Biden is supposed to be taking it to the GOP in this election year and really drawing a line in the sand. And as he said in his speech, I will not budge, I will not be, I'll stand up for voting rights. First of all, he doesn't even have his own party on this, as cinema so flamboyantly demonstrated. But second, the kinds of reforms that he is talking about, the John Lewis Act and the Freedom to Vote Act, neither of these which AB was hinting at, neither of these addresses the real problem, the real emergency that we face, which is the post-election administration, the the counting of votes rather than the casting of votes. So I'm beginning to think that Biden is really incompetent at this president stuff.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, (laughs) it's been a tough year uh, for Biden in a lot of ways, but It might be that this week was the most demoralizing week of his presidency so far. As someone who voted for him with no reservations and has been pulling for him all along, I just sort of stood here slack-jawed this week. And then to hear that speech in Georgia, I mean, I agree with everything A.B. said and that you too, Mona, have said about this. I mean... You really get the feeling that the White House, the the wheels are just spinning off here. They don't know how to manage this politically. They don't know how to get it through Congress. And the whole messaging strategy of treating this as if they're trying to, as you said, bring this to the Republicans and lay a failure of these votes at their feet when every act to actually accomplish that only highlights how divided the Democrats themselves are. They are fighting a war with themselves. And to give a speech in which he it engages in exactly the kind of divisive rhetoric that he rightly lambasted Republicans for using in the campaign just it leaves me dumbfounded that the Joe Biden Twitter account which, of course, unlike Trump, Biden does not personally use and sit there in the White House writing tweets, I'm quite sure, but it released another statement talking about a Jim Crow 2.0. This is just catastrophically badly handled. It's just not good. I mean, we could get into so many aspects of it. A, B, gesture towards some of them. So did you, Mona. The fact is that this very same week, Uh, Democratic senators, including, well, Independent Angus King, but also a, a couple of Democrats, Amy Klobuchar, Dick Durbin, are working on trying to get together a reform of the Electoral Count Act, which we desperately need, and they're trying to woo over enough Republicans to support it so it could pass. This is really important, and that should be the big news and should be what Biden is working on. He should be bringing in every conceivably sympathetic Republican to the White House and sitting down with them along with top Democrats to get that done and should be giving big unifying speeches about how we can come together to solve the problems of our electoral system that are threatened by Trumpism. And instead we're stuck in this mess where the White House is trying to pass bills that were written years before the last election. They were not written with the threat of Trump in mind and the things he represents in the Republican Party. Again, I I feel like I've sort of stumbled around and stepped on my own toes in what I'm saying, because I don't even know where to begin. It's all so (laughs) incompetent. It's very demoralizing.
0: Okay. So Bill Galston, You've commented in the past that the belief that higher turnout favors Democrats is a myth that is subscribed to by both parties. So Republicans believe it and they pass laws that they think are to their benefit by making it a little harder to vote. And Democrats think that if we can have universal voter, you know, automatic voter registration and allow early voting for six months and allow people to mail in their absentee ballots six months after the election is over, that's going to benefit them. And this is in contradiction of what we know, which is that turnout does not favor one party over another. Both parties are mistaken about this, but I'd like you to comment, if you would, on this idea That the administration is now putting out there that if you limit early voting to uh, one week instead of two weeks, and if you limit the number of drop boxes, that this is Jim Crow 2.0?
3: Well, I can answer that one very simply. That's over the top. There are some serious issues here. In my judgment, that's not one of them. Let me now move on to two more substantive points. First of all, The parties are mistaken about the consequences of high turnout because they're looking backward, not forward. In the old days, when Republicans were the party of the highly educated voter and Democrats the party of the less educated voter, then it was safe to say that high turnout favored the Democrats because uh, highly educated voters are regular voters. They turn out no matter what, nine out of ten. Not so for less educated voters, and they needed more mobilization than their highly educated brethren and sisters in order to show up at the polls. But as we all know, the parties have switched positions on the education front, and Republicans now, especially among white voters, are the party of the less educated voter and arguably a higher turnout will on average benefit them. Does that mean in every case? Not necessarily, but it's a much more even balance than it used to be. Second substantive point, if substance has any more relevance in American politics, uh, which I'm beginning to doubt, there are actually three phases of the electoral promise. Phase one is everything leading up to the vote. Phase two is what happens between the casting of votes and the certification of the vote, ultimately by state legislatures or their designees. And then stage three is what happens after the state legislature certifies the vote. And the Biden administration is focusing on stage one, which is the least of the problem, Uh, just a little on stage two, which is a much bigger problem, as everybody has said, and not at all on stage three, although that was where the crisis occurred in 2020. Go figure. I am entirely in agreement with Damon that there may be an Electoral Count Act modernization and reform there for the taking. And since Mitch McConnell, of all people, opened the door a crack to that discussion, it would be criminal not to open the door and walk through it.
0: Well, you know what happens when you say to Democrats, look, there is an opportunity here. You should take this because that was the area where, because the Electoral Count Act is such a terribly written piece of legislation, it opened the door for mischief by the Republicans. The Eastman memo specifically attempted to take advantage of the ambiguity of that law to give the idea that the vice president could somehow decertify slates of electoral votes, et cetera. And what the Democrats say in response is, yes, but if we did that, then we wouldn't get the rest of our agenda through. Then everybody would think we were done. As if you can never accept a partial victory. And frankly, the rest of the stuff is trivial. I mean, we really don't have a big problem with voting access. It's easier to vote now in America than it has ever been. All right, I want to come to Linda now. Linda. We haven't exhausted the dumb things that have happened regarding elections this week because New York City, under its new mayor, Eric Adams, the great moderate hope, if you will, of the Democratic Party, he allowed to become law without his signature, a statute that will allow non-citizens to vote in New York City. So New York becomes the largest jurisdiction in the country to allow non-citizens to vote, and Linda, it's only in municipal elections and it's only legal permanent residents, it's not illegals. But do you think those distinctions, those little nuances, are going to make it into the campaign ads that will be coming from the Republicans? Of course, they're going to make it
4: into those <laughs> campaign ads. They have just handed. Donald Trump and his acolytes, his clones that are all vying, if if he decides not to run, to, to be the next Donald Trump, they've just handed them a huge, big, whopping present, all wrapped up, to be able to run on in the next election. I don't think anyone who listens to this program regularly has any doubts about where my sympathies lie on the immigration issue. I wouldn't call myself an open borders person, but I would say that I am for a big, open, generous legal immigration program. I think immigrants are great for this country. I also think that people who come to this country and want to live here permanently should be encouraged to do everything possible to become American citizens. And naturalization rates differ among the various groups of immigrants who come to the U.S., and one of the great advantages of becoming a naturalized U.S. citizen is that it allows you to vote. So now what are we doing in cities like New York? And by the way, it's not the only place. There are other places around the country where people who are not U.S. citizens are allowed to vote in municipal elections. I think Tacoma Park in Maryland was yeah, one of the first. Yeah, little tiny places. Right, <laughs> eleven tiny of places. The, very, there are right. 14 jurisdictions and, and 11 of them are in Maryland. Yes, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not the first time it's happened, but it sends a very, very bad message. It really devalues the meaning of citizenship. And I want immigrants to become Americans fully, totally, completely. And that includes naturalizing and becoming U.S. citizens in order to fully partake in American civic life. And giving immigrants the right to vote, for example, but not necessarily subjecting them to the burdens of, say, having to serve on a jury, really takes away some of the incentive to going that extra step, to doing what it takes to become a naturalized citizen. But politically, this is such a gift to the right-wing, nativist, rate replacement theory types in the Republican Party who want to say that we're being overrun and that we're being turned into something other than America. And I I have to say, I'm very disappointed in Joe Biden. I'm beginning to wonder about Eric Adams, who I thought was going to be a shining light in
0: New York as well. I think this was very bad judgment. A.B., Rui Tushara had a piece outlining What a terrible thing this Biden speech was and his whole approach on this. And he made a number of points, some of which you made in your initial answer. He pointed out that this won't pass, this legislation that he's talking about, and it will demoralize the base to raise it, only to have them be disappointed yet again. And he pointed out that it's not what voters want, that when you look at polling of the problems that people think need addressing, only 6% list voting rights and he points out that in a number of polls, he cited a Mammoth poll, 84% of non-whites said that they supported requiring a photo ID for voting. This is something we've talked about on this podcast in the past. A.B., again, there are sensible voices out there sort of on bended knee and hands clasped asking Biden to please just do something that makes political sense. And he keeps stepping on rakes.
1: Yeah, I, I find it must be a symptom of this long term experience that they feel that because they were in the White House for eight years, they know how to ride out storms. They don't want to reset. They don't want to course correct. They don't want to admit something's wrong. I mean, Democrats, right now, some of the public health experts who served on his transition team on COVID are telling the administration through the media and being on the record saying they need a new strategy to deal with Omicron. So there's a a real resistance I've seen now as we close on the first year after all the problems started in August and we head into the election year. There's a real stubborn streak among that team that they must have seen it all and know better. But of course there are people that have made it clear that the progressives are insisting on the perfect becoming the enemy of the good, that they did it with Build Back Better, almost prevented the passage of a 70% popular bipartisan went on in physical infrastructure. By the time that passed and made it to the Rose Garden, it was like, wah, wah. Yeah. And so many voices have been making this argument. Now it's interesting that even Hillary Clinton is trying to hint around it that you have to go after the voters you lost who supported President Obama and then President Trump. And that in the intellectual college, those are where these races are won. And they just refuse to listen. I did think that they had the right instincts on COVID and the economy being their imperative. And they stuck to it for a really long time. But how they didn't realize after the first variant mutated into Delta that Omicron wasn't coming and we don't have more mutations coming down the line and we didn't have tests ready has really caused me to question, in addition to all of the rhetoric, to sort of reward progressives and snuggle them and make them feel better throughout these legislative battles really have caused me to question why they want to keep banging their head against the wall when they know the obvious thing. They know as well as David Shore exactly how they lost Black and Hispanic working-class voters to Republicans in 2020. They know know the danger of defunding the police. They know all this. And he's for open schools, but he's dancing around. He doesn't want to stand with the Chicago mayor and sort of put his foot down, which swing voters would listen to. Mm -hmm. They could have been flushed with tests and celebrating schools staying open right now, but they blew that. And it's just over and over again, and they know... They know that voters are tuned out on voting rights. Going back to what I said before, I believe if they'd started earlier and educated the public about this from the bully pulpit as these laws were being passed and not focused on black and brown voters being disenfranchised and voter suppression, but really said, look at what's going on. Look at what they're doing, fixing a problem that doesn't exist. Why is this okay? that Brad Raffensperger has been kicked off the state elections board as secretary of state so that legislators can have more control over the process than him. And why is Trump running someone to run in his place eager to cook the books next time? This is the kind of thing that we would see in polling. We would see that people cared because we would see that they knew. And of course voters are going on with their life. And the fact is there's no lettuce, there's no chicken, there's no milk on the grocery store shelves. And Omicron has has caused these sick outs and is terrifying voters across the board about the economy and when it'll be strong enough because variants keep coming. And even if they don't evade our vaccine protection, and even if they're not so lethal, look what they do. They cause us to have no food. And and this is the kind of thing that can't break through now. And um, I'm just with everybody here. I'm, I'm just so frustrated. All right.
0: Let me um, just advise. There's one aspect of this that we haven't touched on, but it always comes up in discussions of voting rights. And I think it's worth just noting that another myth that's out there is that this can all be fixed by preventing partisan gerrymandering. And I would recommend to everybody that they look up an essay that Harry Enten wrote when he was at 538. He's now at CNN, but it's all still completely relevant. And it was called Ending Gerrymandering Won't Fix What Ails America. And he explains that, yes, gerrymandering is a small part of why we have become more and more polarized as a country, but it's only a very small part. There are a lot of other reasons, too. And he points out that, for example, The House has become more radicalized in the last 20 years, and people say, well, it's gerrymandering, but so has the Senate, and you can't gerrymander a state. So that's just one example. It's a very good essay, and um, part of what was in the Freedom to Vote Act was uh, a provision that would prohibit partisan gerrymandering, and a lot of people believe fervently in that, and I think their faith is misplaced. And I want to just, because I do it every week, I'm going to do it one more time, which is to say we still need to focus on reforming the Electoral Count Act. All right. Well, on that, we will now turn to our next topic. All right. Our topic number two today is the possibility of war in Europe. And joining us to discuss this is our special guest, Benjamin Parker senior editor at The Bulwark, and excellent son to yours truly. So welcome, Ben.
5: <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Get ready for tough questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very good.
0: So, Ben, I'm going to start with you. Vladimir Putin has massed 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine. This is, as we all know, not the first time that he has either threatened to or actually taken bites out of Ukraine. So I wonder if you could set the stage for us by just talking about why Ukraine is so central to Putin, why he feels this burning fury about Ukrainian independence from Russia.
5: It's a really good question. Obviously, for the right answer, you would have to ask him. And depending on when in the last 10 years you asked him, you might get a different answer. But the best answer is probably something along these lines. Ukraine, uh, except for a very brief period in the early 19-teens, has been part of the same state with Russia since the 17th century when it joined with the Russian Empire uh, as part of the Soviet Union. It is an Eastern Slavic-speaking country, the only others being Russia and Belarus. And the prospect of Ukraine becoming democratic, becoming a rule of law state, becoming integrated with Europe, becoming integrated with the Euro-Atlantic world more generally, is a threat to Putin. I think there's, in a certain respect, nothing special about Ukraine. He would feel the same way if it were Belarus instead. And we see that because over the last two years, when it looked like the Belarusian dictator, Alexander Lukashenko, was in dire straits, Putin immediately intervened to prop him up. Uh, Ukraine has been, since 1991, on a very different trajectory from Russia. It has been trying to integrate with the Atlantic world. It has been much more democratic. It's been plagued by corruption. But just to give an example, since its independence in 1991, only one president of Ukraine has ever been reelected. That's not something you can say about Russia, which (laughs) has had the same leader since 1999. And the further Ukraine gets towards becoming what they you know, often call both in Ukraine and Russia a normal country, just to say, just like it's democratic, free European neighbors, the more that is a threat to Russia, because the Russians might look over the border and say, hey, if the Ukrainians can do that, why can't we? Yeah. So Linda, Putin famously said that the dissolution of the
0: Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. And that was a century that included two world wars and The Holocaust. Genocides, yeah. So, um, yeah. So do you think that we are doing enough to deter Russia from invading Ukraine? Or do you think that this is something that we just don't have that much control over?
4: It's not a question, I think, of whether or not we have control over it. I think we are absolutely not doing enough. I think that uh, Joe Biden has, has no interest whatsoever in playing a force for role. I mean, you know, he's he threatens uh, Russia with diplomacy. Oh, my goodness. If, you know, you don't start behaving, we're going to have diplomacy thrown at you. And, you know. Well, and sanctions. He's threatened sanctions. It's sanctions. Yeah, but you know what? Sanctions haven't worked recently in case no one's noticed no. with Russia. Mm-hmm. They just haven't. And, you know, more sanctions, bigger sanctions, uh, there are ways around them, and, and they don't seem to work at all. What he's not done... Is to suggest in any way that the United States might want to position jets and other kinds of weapons in uh, friendly areas. We've we've got a base in Poland. You know, he he has not been forthcoming. I think enough in giving Ukraine the kinds of uh, weapons that would allow them to at least put up a, a really good fight against Russia if there were an invasion. And in that respect, that's not unlike his former boss, President Obama, who also disappointed uh, Ukraine. So, you know, I I don't think we're doing enough. And I do think that this is perilous. I mean, you know, the idea that there would be a war in Europe is almost unthinkable. We have not had such a thing occur in any broad scale. I mean, obviously, there was the the war uh, in the Balkans, uh, but it didn't spread. But here you have a situation where you have other countries that were once part of, if not directly part of the Soviet Union, were in fact dominated by this uh, Soviet Union countries like Poland, and you have Putin behaving uh, in what is clearly an imperialist fashion. I mean, he... The idea that that he's going to invade, I mean, he's already taken part of Ukraine, that he's going to invade and take more of Ukraine uh, is is something that we just don't know how that would end. We do not know that that it would not spread further. And the fact that President Biden is behaving so fecklessly uh, in this regard, I think, is very dangerous. It's one thing not to get your voting rights bill passed. It's one thing uh, not to get your bill Back Better bill passed. But if we end up seeing real war in part of Europe and, and the possibility of that spreading, this is a direct threat uh, and one that I think we're, we're just in a very, very dangerous
0: uh, point right now. Bill Galston, Linda says that the president is being feckless. I've seen the argument made that actually these negotiations that we're engaged in are smart because time is not on Putin's side, that the longer we drag out negotiations, the harder it will be for him to use that military, especially if it drags into the spring, which would be late March, when the ground becomes too soggy
3: for tanks. What do you make of that argument? I think that's what the Pentagon thinks, although I have to tell you, that within my own institution, you know, I've witnessed divisions on this very point among current and former military officers, and I've pushed on this point, and I'm left more confused than when I started. I don't know whether that is true or not. Having said that, I'd like to give one and a half cheers for the administration in its management of this. I'm a click more favorable than Linda. They have done on Ukraine what they failed to do on Afghanistan, namely reach out to all the people with skin in the game and bring them in from the sidelines to the real discussion. I think the Biden team has done a pretty skillful job of consulting with allies and, and partners and getting NATO, the EU, the OSCE, and other groups as closely aligned as is possible under the circumstances. That's point number one. Point number two, if we were just talking about traditional sanctions, I'd agree with Linda. But on the table are at least two items that go far beyond that. Number one, The threat to disconnect Russia from the international financial system. That is a real threat, and I know there are analysts who believe that Russia could work around that and that they could draw on help from the Chinese in order to survive the blow to their economy, but that's not trivial. It would be not targeted at individual oligarchs. It would be a blow to the Russian economy as a whole. And finally, and most important... The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is on the table. I have consulted with experts on Germany and the new German coalition. Nobody knows exactly how far the Germans are willing to go, but there's a fair chance that they're going to be forced to take the position that if there's a Russian invasion of Ukraine, they will not approve the beginning of operations of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That would be a huge deal for Russia and also geopolitically. And I think that the administration's policy has given the Russians a lot to think about in in the past few weeks. Could they have done better? Yes. Item. They could have accelerated the delivery of purely defensive weaponry to Ukraine, and I could go through a long list of things they could have delivered and haven't, and I'm not sure why not, if I had one message to deliver to the Biden administration. It would be, get off the dime, stop worrying if you are worrying about provoking the Russians, and get the Ukrainians the weapons they need to defend themselves, which doesn't mean that they can beat the Russians, but they could make them pay a much higher price.
0: A.B., Russia has other cards to play too, though. They are saying if sanctions are imposed, or they are hinting anyway, that if sanctions are imposed on them, that they will cut off the gas supplies to Europe in the middle of the winter, which, uh, and that's not insignificant. It's something like 40% of Europe's heating oil and fuel comes from uh, Russia. So um, what's your sense of... the the relative dangers here, the the proper uh, positioning by the West and by by the Biden administration?
1: Well, I think it's hard to know if the administration working with our allies continue to hold Putin off if what Bill says is true or not. I don't think we can be critical if behind the scenes they are effectively working with allies to use Nord Stream as leverage with the Germans and to try to, I mean, they are, you know, they're sending the secretary of state on TV to say that there will be, you know, severe punishment and, and confrontation if, if they don't come along. So I think that, you know, you could look at this and say, maybe, you know, maybe they're working as a coalition very effectively this time. And, that Biden has, you know, been on this rodeo before and knows what he's doing. And I think time will reveal whether or not that's true. But what's clear is that Putin is moving and that he moved into Georgia and Crimea and intends to do this eventually because he feels that he doesn't ultimately in the past pay that much of a price. So I think Linda's right, the the idea of of an actual conflagration that spreads in Europe, it's, you know, it's really absolutely terrifying. But I think I would probably say that so far they're succeeding in a, in a, in a world of no good options where there's obviously no easy answer. And this happened in Crimea under the Obama administration and, and on and on that there's no good, obviously there's no easy path for Biden, but that perhaps he's putting more of an effort into this than he has into other things since he took office overseas, and that they might just be incrementally succeeding, and that the threats of the sanctions uh, might be potent enough to hold off an invasion into Ukraine. Anything we say changes, right, if, if he acts, and he's positioning himself to act. So um, I'm not going to make any predictions, but it might be that he that Putin's threats to Europe, combined with our efforts with our allies in Europe, Lead to some 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 serious bite enough that he holds off longer, but it's a long term goal and he's going to do it. I don't know who will be president when he does it. Hmm. Um,
0: Damon, one of the one of the curious things about this is that when you read stories that originate from Kiev, you you don't sense that the Ukrainians themselves are that nervous. I mean. You know, the rest of the world seems to be more worried about what might happen in the next few weeks than the Ukrainians themselves. You know, apparently things are going on as normal. People are kind of shrugging it off, or at least that's the impression I get from some of the reporting. What do you make of that? Do they know something we don't know? What do Or are they just whistling past the graveyard, or does it not... Not matter either way
2: well i'm i'm not really sure uh, i mean it it might be an indication that they're somewhat less concerned than than Linda was earlier at the prospect of an invasion on the eastern side of the country spreading throughout the region so if the if the polling is mainly taking place i mean i don 't know where. Where the the journalism or the polling is is getting its information, if it's in Kiev, uh, it could be that uh, there they don't really worry that, well, of course, he's not going to come this far if he invades, and so my life won't be that much disrupted. It could be that. Or maybe they just think it's, it's like bluster, and we've heard Putin do it before. I mean, frankly, if I lived there, I think I would be on the more worried side of things. <laughs> uh, but uh, I really don't know what, uh, what, what they might be thinking on the ground there. I don't know how informed they are about what's happening. But it seems to show that uh, the government it doesn't seem to be whipping up a lot of concern about it. So I'm, I'm yeah. not really sure.
0: Um, so and, and what's your sense of, uh, of the, what the. US should well, be I, doing or is doing?
2: Yeah, well, it's complicated. As usual in foreign policy, I come from somewhat different premises from uh, most of the rest of the team here. Um, I mean, my sense of, of the situation in that part of the world is that we're we're kind of trapped in a scenario where we are sort of bound to lose ground. And that's because since the end of the Cold War, we have been expanding NATO eastward, I believe, into areas that we are, in all honesty, not willing to fight a war for. And that's not a good idea unless you think bluffing is a really great idea in uh, foreign affairs, and I don't. I mean, sometimes you have to bluff. But in general, it's not a good idea to expand a defensive alliance that has mutual defense provisions wedded into it if you're not really willing to send troops and have them die for the cause. And I think it is simply the case that there will be no stomach for sending American soldiers to fight and die to defend eastern Ukraine. Therefore, Ukraine should not be part of NATO and the same is true of georgia and and uh, other countries that uh, may wish to join nato for their own sake i don't blame them they would benefit enormously from that in theory so I, I putin i think knows this and he is in effect calling this bluff he does not believe we will fight to defend these parts the world. And he believes that it matters to him a lot more what happens there than it matters to us. And I think he's probably right about that. And given that fact, it's hard for me to see him in a way. A.B. said a version of this toward the end of her comments that, you know, maybe this stuff will work that we're doing, but you know, uh, can we really stop? You know, maybe maybe we can get uh, Putin to delay so it won't happen this winter. Maybe it'll happen during Biden's successor. Uh, you know, the next president, uh, who knows? But it does seem as if um, I, I fear that uh, NATO uh, in in this region has probably – jumped a little bit ahead of itself, and uh, or we're not we're not going to end up staying at the current lines. We're probably going to have to pull back a little bit and, and have a discussion, a tough discussion, about where exactly are we willing to fight and risk American lives on the line? And that is where we should really make clear, no, this is where uh, you can go no further, because I don't think it's eastern Ukraine.
0: So, Ben, I'm going to come back to you. Clearly, Vladimir Putin would like to drive an ice pick into NATO's skull and kill it. And perhaps he's trying to do that now. But it just strikes me that he has so much more to lose than to gain, even by his own standards. I mean, if he invades Ukraine, it will strengthen NATO. NATO will immediately redouble all of its forces, you know, on its eastern perimeter, and uh, and the, the countries that are in it now will clamor for even stronger support. And I don't know. I mean, it will it will convince everyone that NATO does have a purpose after all. Or, or am I not getting that
5: right? I think you're basically getting that right. I'd like to start, if I may, by uh, begging to differ with Damon a little bit. Uh, I don't sure. think anyone will be uh, that <laughs> surprised that we see things slightly differently. But um, I think it helps, first of all, to separate two things that— I, aren't always separated, but but in this case, should be. There's NATO and there's Ukraine. Ukraine, along with Georgia in 2008, was promised by NATO, which makes decisions as a bloc. You know, all the decisions are unanimous. They were promised eventual membership in NATO, but they were given no timetable. This became sort of annoying and then embarrassing for the Ukrainians when That timetable never seemed to move forward. And as recently as this past summer, when there was a NATO meeting, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was pushing very hard for some movement, some sort of promise, some sort of update. And NATO returned and said, yes, you will someday be a member of NATO. So the... All indications were that for a period of more than a decade, NATO was in no hurry to add Georgia or Ukraine to the alliance for some of the reasons Damon mentioned. And now Putin has forced the issue. Now he has you know, made the issue not just will Ukraine be a member of NATO, and it doesn't really look like it. Now he's made the issue, are land grabs in Europe by force— Something that is allowed or not allowed it should be pointed out. That there, this is not a new war we're talking about. This has been a war that's been going on for almost eight years now, since the seizure of Crimea and the invasion of Eastern Ukraine in 2014. And yes, I think you're right that I, I, I don't necessarily agree that a renewed offensive in Ukraine would break the spine of NATO. I think it's, I think it would, it would be a crisis. But I think. Statements from the leadership in in Sweden and Finland very recently have signaled that they would be very open to NATO membership if there was renewed Russian aggression. And uh, I think you're right in that, you know, a full on invasion of Ukraine would be a big mistake for Putin. But we should also recognize that it appears that there are several options on the table for the Russians, ranging from much smaller land grabs that would either connect Crimea to the nominally independent republics that are controlled by russia and eastern ukraine all the way up to an invasion that takes huge chunks of the country very unlikely they would try to hold the whole thing but it would probably end very poorly for them that is if you believe that the nato alliance is actually strong actually united would actually have the uh, grit and political will to respond and you know maybe that's right but putin seems to be willing to gamble we'll see and now we will come to our final segment.
0: All right, we have come to our highlight and lowlight of the week, and I will start with you, Damon Linker.
2: Well, uh, I have a highlight uh, this week. I want to, in general, encourage listeners to uh, take a look at uh, the. It's an actual blog, not a Substack, a blog by uh, a writer named uh, Kevin Drum. It's titled Jabber Walking, but you could just Google Kevin Drum, which is very easy to spell, um, and find it. I don't know why he doesn't uh, start a substack, so you could maybe make a little money at this. But he's very good. Kevin is a is a genuinely a liberal. Uh, he was at Mother Jones for a long time, and now he's independent and blogging and doing some other things. In general, uh, his blog is is very good. He's a liberal, but he's skeptical of a lot of progressivism. So I think he overlaps with a lot of our listeners. And he's very empirical, uses a lot of data to make his points. And I want to specifically highlight uh, something that he posted earlier this week titled, Why is President Biden staking so much on passing new voter laws? And this relates to our first segment this afternoon on this subject, and there's some really good data in here. I know that we talked earlier, and and uh, Bill in particular, talked about uh, this kind of a misapprehension that somehow higher voter participation rates helped Democrats, or did it used to help Republicans more? Kevin actually cites uh, some pretty uh, compelling data showing a slightly different point, that Aside from who it benefits, he he kind of looks over time from 1980 to today about voter turnout by state and shows that regardless of whether states have made it harder or easier to vote, turnout rates have really uh, remained essentially flat for the last 40 years. Showing that in, in a lot of ways, all of this fight going on right now is about much of nothing. It's really... Nothing much has made a big difference. Voting turnout rates have remained, again, not entirely flat. They waver up and down a little bit. But there is no general trend up or down, even across states. So he breaks it out. First, he has a general line for All states aggregated together, and then you get to look at the individual lines. So a good example of of a good Kevin Drum post, but I endorse his blog in general as being very good and worth your time.
0: Excellent. Sounds right up our alley. Uh,
1: Okay, A.B. Stoddard. So I stumbled on, and I'm sure you all have too, two really fascinating accounts by progressive, liberal, lefty, democratic, partisan no matter what uh, description you want to use, women whose lives changed uh, because of school closures and it made them question their affiliation with the Democratic Party, their opposition to Republicans, and their lives really came under incredible strain because of their new opinions. Uh, So I highly recommend uh, Rebecca Boddenheimer wrote something. She's from Oakland. She wrote something in Politico on uh, January 11. And then there's a piece by Angie Schmidt, why I soured on the Democrats' COVID school policies set me adrift from my tribe in the Atlantic January 7. And they're they're very similar, but they're, they're very illustrative, uh, a very important thing for Democrats to take into consideration. And also, uh, unfortunately, a real uh, picture of what happens on social media and within our little Bubbles and tribes when we disagree with um, the common opinion and step out of the dogma uh, really, really, really interesting and revelatory pieces of work
0: all right, uh, yep, school closing parents, parents angry about school closing, especially uh, moms, could be the the next big group that we talk about in the twenty twenty two election it's entirely possible. Okay, Ben Parker,
5: my uh, highlight this week starts as a tweet from Kevin Cruz, history professor at Princeton. Uh, It is a screenshot from the Fiddler on the Roof movie that shows Tevye singing and dancing with his milk cart behind him. And the caption that he's given this is sedition. (laughs) And I can only assume that this is a reference to the fact that the Department of Justice announced earlier today that the leader of the Oath Keepers uh, militia organization, along with, I think, 10 others, have been charged, uh, indicted under the Seditious Conspiracy Statute. These will be the first indictments uh, related to January 6th to use that statute, uh, which basically makes it a crime to commit sedition. And, you know, of course, these people are all innocent until proven guilty. And until such time as they are convicted by a jury of their peers, we assume that the DOJ is wrong. But bearing all that in mind, I'm sure I speak for many when I say to our friends of the Justice Department, go get them.
0: Uh, yeah well they they are um they are technically innocent until proven guilty in a court of law but in the court of public opinion we can have our own views (laughs) Um, yeah all right linda chavez
4: uh well i want to point to an article that appeared in reason magazine actually was in the online site of reason.com and it's uh entitled the u.s immigration system needs to do more to help the uyghurs you know, obviously, the Uyghurs have been the focus of much angst in the human rights community over the last several years. Uh, the Biden administration announced that it was not going to send any diplomats to the Chinese Olympics uh, because uh, of the way in which China is treating the 13 and a half million or so Uyghurs that live in China, everything from putting them into what are essentially concentration camps. Women are raped, uh, forced abortions, people are put to uh, forced labor. It's, it's a horrific situation. Well, uh, it's all good and well that we're not sending diplomats uh, to China, but neither are we admitting any Uyghurs into our uh, refugee program. In the past two fiscal years, as Reason points out, the U.S. has admitted exactly zero Uyghur refugees. We do have about 800 Uyghurs who are claiming asylum uh, and have managed to get to the United States one way or another through travel visas, uh, student visas, etc. But they are caught in this abysmal breakdown uh, in the asylum process, and so they're not being admitted either. So I just want to point this out. You know, it's one of the many ways in which our entire immigration slash refugee slash asylum process has broken down. And uh, it's quite tragic. And I just commend people to read this short piece on Reason.com.
0: Thank you for that. It's really shameful how few refugees we've been taking in recent years, mostly at the initiative of the Trump administration.
3: Bill Galston. Well, as a center-left sort of guy, I pay attention to the competition, and the best of the competition on the center-right often appears in the pages of National Affairs, a quarterly that Yuval Levin edits. In the most recent issue, I found an article by Robert Salden S-A-L-D-I-N, urging his Republican and conservative brethren to think a lot harder about the crisis of long-term care for the elderly that's looming in the country. If you look at the statistics, the increase in the number of people over 65, over 75, over 85 between now and 2035 is is going to be breathtaking. We are on the verge of a situation where we can't even give appropriate care – To the people we have now who need it. Nursing homes are having a very hard time mobilizing appropriate staffing levels, and individuals and families are in no position to deal with this very expensive problem on their own. I've been part of bipartisan discussions on this issue for years now, and Saldans is a very welcome voice on the center right, urging that. Republicans get together with Democrats and independents who've been focusing on this issue for a long time and really put on the table a serious long-term solution because otherwise we're going to be hit with a wave, which is already beginning to crest, and we are going to be years behind where we need to be in order to deal with it effectively.
0: Bill, Bill, Bill. You're assuming that we can come together and solve problems in America today <laughs> I mean, What are you thinking? No I'm uh, thinking,
3: I'm thinking that if Democrats and Republicans could get together to build roads and bridges and expand broadband to rural areas and neglected urban areas that maybe we could make more of a habit of it.
0: Yeah. All right, let us uh, say a little prayer about that. All right, I would like to praise Morning Shots by Charlie Sykes, which is the newsletter that comes to Bulwark Plus members every day. It is must reading, and particularly the one that came this week on January 12th was extraordinary. The title was Biden Needs Four Sister Soldier Moments, and he cited where Biden needs to separate himself from the Left And from the progressives on crime, schools, voting, and language. And uh, he gave chapter and verse about how easy this would be for Biden to do and would be very, very salutary for his political standing and for the Democratic Party in general. Uh, After this week's performance, perhaps President Biden is looking for some new ideas, so I commend uh, morning shots to him, and I commend morning shots to all of our listeners. Uh, If you become a member of Bulwark Plus, you will get three daily newsletters including morning shots and two others and you will get secret podcasts i do a secret podcast with charlie sykes once a week and jbl and sarah do one and we have thursday night live streams every week so um there's a lot on offer we you also get all of the podcasts that we do across the uh, movie aisle all kinds of great benefits of membership so i highly recommend you consider becoming a member. We would love to have you. And I want to thank our guests this week, A.B. Stoddard and Benjamin Parker. And we will return next week as every week.